So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruz. Founders and friends. It's Cruz Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Ohm. Hello, and welcome to the Cruz Consulting Podcast. I'm your host, Healy Jones. I'm here with Abe Othman of AngelList. Abe is AngelList's resident data scientist and has published some amazing research on the venture capital market and where valuations and deals are going. We're really excited to have this conversation with him. Uh, first, a quick word for, about our sponsor. Hey, this is Healy Jones, VP of Financial Strategy here at Cruise Consulting. And I want to say thanks to our podcast sponsor, ARC. At Cruise, we've got a number of clients successfully using ARC to manage their deposits, payments, access financing, all in one place. One of the things that ARC provides that's really great is over a quarter of a million dollars in FDSC coverage. Their insurance program goes beyond the standard limit and it secures up to five and a quarter million dollars. So startups that have even more cash than that can go and access treasury solutions that provide yield and safety. If you're a startup looking for a secure financial solution that can help you scale, please check out our sponsor ARC at ARC.tech. Abe, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It's a delight to have you here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So let, let's learn a little bit about who you are um, and, and what you do with AngelList. Uh, give, give us a little bit about, about your background and a little bit about what you do for AngelList. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I started the data science team at AngelList uh, back in 2019, a few months before uh, uh, AngelList's current CEO, Avlock, started. And what was unique about what well, I've been doing venture investing for, at this point, about a decade some friends and I have a, a small investment partnership and uh, have mainly focused on uh, fintech and I don't know what you call frontier tech or deep tech uh, investing. I live in Seattle now, but uh, lived in the Bay Area in San Francisco for almost a decade. Prior to that, I did a PhD in uh, computer science at Carnegie Mellon and did my undergraduate degree in uh, applied math from Harvard. And I moved out to the Bay Area originally to start a company um, with um, one of my college roommates and kind of got involved in venture capital and venture investing kind of just through my experience with, with being a, a venture-backed uh, startup founder. At the start of last year, uh, moved to uh, Seattle. So I live in Seattle now. Well, you know, you wrote a report that caught my eye that was uh, the state of U.S. early stage venture startups in Q2 2023. And you basically said that was, Q2 was the worst that AngelList has seen uh, since 2023. I think the first question I had was, okay, well, what kind of data do you have to back that up? Do you want to talk a little bit about like the, the data that you're swimming in and yeah. uh, you know what you're able to do with that and what you're able to see? So, so AngelList, um, as you know, and as your listeners may know, is, is described as the, the world's largest startup investing platform. Um, you know, the, the number of deals that goes through the platform is, is very high. So when we do these quarterly reports now, it's I think it's up to... Uh, we're tracking what happens um, on a very, very timely basis, um, you know, because we're on the cap table. So we see what financings are happening and what the price per shares are of something like 17,000 um, active venture-backed uh, companies. So it's like a very, very large slice of the startup universe that we get to a, a really close, like very timely, uh, close-in perspective on. Like we don't have to wait for people to do their fundraising announcements, you know, in, uh, you know, six months down the line, uh, you know, we see it when the docs get signed. You're seeing the docs, you're seeing the money flow, like you are in the mix there real time. 
Correct, because AngelList is is uh, you know what is AngelList? One way of interpreting what AngelList is is like a many 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 thousand LLCs. I guess they're actually series LPs, but like many 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 of these like little companies, each of which holds uh, is a fund or an investment through an SPV, and so. Uh, th- those are the things that are on the cap table, and those ultimately those cap table resources point back at, at Angelus. So anything that you know requires investor consent or whatever, it, it, it goes through Angelus and is updated on the Angelus platform. For those quarterly reports, you know it's, it's interesting. We that was that started as a uh, pandemic project back in uh, the second quarter of 2020, just so we could get an understanding of what the heck was happening to uh, the venture universe during the pandemic. And um, I think one of the things that was you know actually when we did. The, the first report for second quarter of 2020, that was, you know, the worst venture capital had ever been. Uh, you know, there's a there's a stretch in April there where just, you know, everyone thought the world was ending. Everything stopped, and, right? Yeah, everything, everything like nothing happened for like 60 days, right? And we all thought the world was ending. And then all of a sudden, like, boom, things went crazy, right? <laughs> That's right. And I think one of, the, one of the funniest things about that was that we started doing that. So that was our first quarterly report that we did was second quarter of 2020. And at the time, I remember talking with our, with our comms person, our, our sort of... Um, uh, Matt, who who writes uh, a lot of the report, and I was like, you know, this is this is my biggest concern about doing these quarterly reports is that most quarters, by definition, are just typical. Like that's what being typical means is that you know it, maybe you see a little bit more activity, but it's a little bit worse. Maybe you, maybe you see a little bit less activity, but it's a little bit better. Like you know, most quarters are just normal. That's what normal. That's what being normal means. I was like, you know, it's going to be like this one, you know, this first report in the second quarter of 2020, and we actually even got some Wall Street Journal coverage on it was like really interesting because we're talking about all these down rounds and, you know, is where, where is venture relative where it's been over the past decade? And I was like, you know, we should not expect this. Like this is this is like a very much a one-off and like, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to be a sustainable thing we do because eventually people are going to get bored of this. And ever since the second quarter of 2020, um, literally every single quarterly report we've ever done has been interesting. Either, you know, the, the best in something or the worst in something. Uh, venture has not been normal for a very, very, like, like for a very long time uh, since, since before the pandemic. And so what, what happened in a nutshell, uh, we know this because we've done quarterly reports, is that uh, obviously activity fell off a cliff uh, in the pandemic, then came roaring back. And we had a long stretch of seven quarters or something of like the best quarter ever. It, it's also worth talking about, you know, how do, how do we, what do we talk about when we talk about like how good the venture market is doing? So we look at uh, two axes. One is how many companies change their price per share over the quarter. And the second axis is how many of those price changes were positive. And as a general rule, the rate of positive changes goes somewhere between like, you know, 55 to 90%. So it's usually tilted up to be positive. And, and one of the reasons why, there are a number of reasons why, like, but I think the, the cleanest explanation is that sort of like a, a company tends to do, you know, a succession of, when times are good, companies do a succession of rounds where their valuation increases, you know, 2X or 3X or whatever. So you get more frequent sort of smaller positive updates. And then when a company does, a startup company, we have some research on this, when, when a venture investment goes bad, it, you know, it, it goes bad very, very uh, quickly. Like it, it, uh, the valuation loss is, is really severe. Um, you know, the, the typical money losing seed investment is, is, you know, down, loses 80% of its value, 90% of its value. So like, you know, it's kind of an escalator up, elevator down 
the trend. And so as a result, if you look at any kind of individual time frame, the results tend to be like fairly positive. That doesn't really say anything about asset class returns, which is fine. We're not trying to make a returns. This is not about returns, it's about like the health of the ecosystem. So those are the two dimensions that we have and, and kind of in normal time. So then again, those are uh, amount of activity and kind of what we call the tenor of the activity, like how positive that activity is. In normal times, which have not happened for, for you know four plus years, but in normal times, what you would see is there was a, a very clear kind of uh, sort of linear trade-off for typical behavior, where you know if you observe more activity, that activity would tend to be a little bit worse, and if you observe less activity, that activity would tend to be a little bit better. I attribute that trade-off to just uh, noisiness in terms of when we learn about companies shutting down, because like you know if a company is dead, is it you know what what quarter you actually attributed that company being dead to is like pretty much a, a, a fuzzy toss-up. And so it tends to be like, if you hear about more companies doing stuff, that activity tends to be a little bit worse because you're hearing about uh, a, a bunch of companies that have like, that you're attributing a shutdown to in that quarter. So that's like the typical relationship. And what we've seen, you know, for the last four years doesn't, doesn't hold on that at all. In the kind of the bubble of 2021 or something, there was a, a lot of activity and that activity was very, very, very positive. And now when we look at what's happening today, uh, we see, you know, we're at record low rates of activity, and that activity is is very negative, actually approaching fifty percent uh, oh, positive so for the first time. Wow. Okay. Wow. So it's, your downloads are hard; that they they are much harder to pull off. So the fact that you're seeing really high activity for downloads um, that shows. Uh, no, no. So, so so there's there's not much activity, and the activity oh, not activity. much. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So so that's a real, um, you know, that's that's. We attribute that to be to actually be very bad because our our perception is that our observed activity tends to be just with startups, right? If things are going well, you hear about it, and if they're not going well, people tend to like kind of. Uh, I think Paul Graham has a line about you know like crawling under the porch and dying. Like you don't hear about things that are going well, so our our sense is that everything we're not hearing about is worse than everything we're hearing about. And right now we're not hearing about much stuff and the stuff we're hearing about is not particularly good. So, right. you know, we had, I believe it was last year, uh, like fourth quarter last year, we were pretty much on, uh, had, the, had the exact, we'd actually matched where we were second quarter of 2020 in terms of uh, activity and tenor. And now we're like much worse. Uh, so, so, you know, when so, you so, said, you're saying, so you're saying last year was as bad as you had seen, and we continue to go worse. That's right. And that's why, like, okay. what I'm saying is that we've had kind of superlatives every single quarter since we started these quarterly reports. You know, I was expecting yeah. it to just get really boring, and instead it's never been boring. It's always been something exciting, yeah. either excitingly positive or excitingly negative. Um, yeah. You just got to have a bottle of assets if you're, if you're in this industry, I guess. <laughs> one, one of the things that um, you showed in that report – was that valuations dropped again? That the uh, median seed valuation you saw was 16 million. The median Series A was 45, 46 million. Where do you think valuations are going? Yeah, I, I think this is so. There's a larger kind of phenomenon that's happening here, and I think this is uh, one of the interesting things we're able to look at. So, Angel is real strength. The real strength in the platform from a data perspective that literally nobody else has is this. Price per share changes on a monthly basis in all of these companies. We can actually track time, like sort of time effects in a way that uh, you just can't do. Any any other source won't give you that those those time effects. So what we were able to look at is we wanted to see the relationship between public markets and early stage venture, 
And what we discovered is, so we had known there was some discussion in the literature about the time lag between public markets and private equity being about six to 12 months. And what we discovered was that actually the time lag uh, between public markets and early stage venture is longer than that. So we think it's actually like nine to 21 months. So like three to seven quarters. So what that means- So the the NASDAQ drops and it won't be a year or so until- early stage feels that? Is that what you're saying? Correct. Which is why um, seed round prices like kept, you know, you can think about it as, as sort of a whip, right? Like the public markets drop is the very, is, is part of the whip that's, that's that you hold in your hand and the seed round prices are the very tip of the whip. And so what's happening is kind of that, that, uh, that wave is kind of going through the whip right now. And it's still, it still hasn't fully hit seed round pricing, which is remarkable. Like when you think about it, because I think most folks, don't, you know, have for like, you know, public markets now are pushing back against record highs. People are not like, they've kind of forgotten what happened in like the first quarter of last year in the public markets. But our, what our data suggests is that like the early stage venture is still digesting like what happened in January and February of last year. Like it is, it is not like everyone else has forgotten about it, but like startups haven't. And that is still being worked through and that it, it won't become fully digested until the start of next year. And so what that means practically is that, so I think that is a cause of the sort of stubborn persistence. Like one of the things that happened is, you know, you saw it late stage rounds got crammed down first, then series B, then series A, and then finally seed, which, which went from, um, you know, it was, it was unusual uh, sort of above the top quartile of seed deals to have a $20 million pre-money seed valuation in 2021, that became typical. So it, you got this, you got the shift from like maybe 85th or 90th percentile became the 50th percentile for pricing. That has been reduced, that has been tempered a bit, but it's still much higher than it, than it was at the start of the pandemic. And, I do and it's it was, not anywhere near the drop that like the Series B and Series C had, right? Like it's, it's really been pretty, pretty stubborn at, at, that, at that level. <laughs> Well, part of it, and this is worth being explicit about because I think um, other folks who have reported on this have, have missed this. Uh, part of it is a category readjustment between seed and pre-seed. So what's the, so like, uh, you know, a lot of, as I'm sure you know from your kind of accounting practice, like a lot of seed and pre-seed rounds are done on safes uh, of, of venture-backed companies. They're done on safes. And if you think about it, like what is the difference between a, a pre-seed safe and a seed safe? And it's like, well, there's not like there's, you know, in neither case, yeah, it's mean, someone board seat, right? It's, it's, it's sort of in some sense, an arbitrary distinction. Um, it, it's, it's, it's whatever the law, the lawyer types for the name of the financing round, right? Well, <laughs> if they type or, or, pre-seed, or if they put whatever the, the yeah, uh, whatever exactly. the investment associate is like, oh, that yeah. looks like a seed, that looks like a seed round. Or like that looks like a pre-seed. Exactly. Are you sure yes. that's a pre-seed? Because exactly. that seems like a pretty high valuation. And so what you end up seeing is that essentially like, the categories have just been redefined so that more or less everything that's kind of like cheaper than 10 million, maybe 12 million pre-money is now just called a pre-seed. Um, and so you do have this category mix shifting, whereas before pre-seed rounds were relatively rare on the Angels platform and seed valuations were kind of low. Now um, we're almost seeing parity between the number of pre-seed and seed deals. Uh, and actually the pricing in kind of both of those categories has, has uh, increased. But if you just take the whole kind of bucket on 
pre-Series A investments, we, we have seen a substantial price rise in that that has remained persistent. So it's not quite a category effect like in, entirely that's happening. It, the category effect does explain some of it of what, what you categorize as a seed deal is, is just exp- more expensive because seed deals, more expensive rounds are called seed deals right. more frequently. Um, so so you, you wrote another research uh, piece that I thought was fascinating that may actually answer that question. So I'm going to I'm going to ask the question that is the title of the blog post here, okay? So here here's the question. Do startup valuations matter for investment returns? Yeah, so so this is actually a topic of some contention and uh, I think a lot of VCs think that they do. Uh, you know, oh, that deal is So too- yeah, and 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 explicitly what we're saying is your entry price, like the price that the VC pays when they make that first investment does that price matter, right? So right. it's like you walk into the store and you pay $2 for the can of corn or $5, does it make a difference, right? Well, and so intuitively it should, right? Because your you know return multiple on, on your investment is a function of both exit price and entry price. So if you hold exit prices constant, uh, if you pay twice as much as your entry price, your return should be half as much. Um, we have, right? You just, yeah, you, you, it's that, this, this the math. <laughs> so the, the way that that is, and this is actually, I think very interesting because we actually looked at, um, temporally in time. Um, so I think there's, there's two kind of dimensions. Like, so if you look at kind of, uh, market trends over the time, like we do think that these high prices are causing a, that, that we had in the pandemic are causing a, a dramatic decrease in the number of, of markups that are happening now. Um, so in some sense, yes, like, like, um, market prices do affect rate of markups. If you're, if you're, if you're paying, you know, if, if you've paid very high seed prices and, you know, series A prices end up coming down when you, when your companies that you invested in seed try to raise series A, like that's, that will affect returns. But what doesn't affect returns uh, in our data, because we looked at very, a lot of, um, holding time constant and looking at the differences between uh, deal prices within a, a fixed amount of time. So like look at, you know, the, the second quarter of 2019, the first half of 2018, look at all the deals that happened in that time window and investigate them based on price versus performance. And what we saw there is that actually there, there doesn't seem to be any like that actually, you know, the, the band on this is, is quite high. So we looked at quintiles um, and, and for a typical kind of stretch of time, a typical quarter, the typical top quintile by price deal is a uh, C deal is, you know, five X the price of the typical bottom quintile. So think like 30 million pre-money versus 6 million pre-money. And you might think, well, okay, how, you know, it seems like the, like intuitively if the model of, uh, well, all the exits are going to be the same or like, you know, all these companies are competing for a series, you know, the, the generic series A or something you know, you'd expect the lower price deals to do better. And what we found was that both looking at markup rates as well as the typical multiplier of marked up deals, uh, there was really no relationship. Uh, we, we could not find a relationship. So, between- so, so you're saying that the sort of typical seed deal that's super cheapo, six million bucks, gets more or less marked up kind of the same way that the typical seed deal that's 50 million bucks or, or what, what do you, what do correct. you say? Correct. Yeah, that, that's correct. That, that essentially like what we're saying is, and this is, I think one of the most surprising things from our research is that early stage venture appears to be fairly efficient. Um, and so, there's a so the pricing, the pricing is, the pricing is rational. Right. <laughs> so if, you're, if you're paying five times as much, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I would go that far, but I'm saying that there's no, okay. 
and so I want to be like specific about, about what the efficiency here is. It, if you're paying five times as much for a C deal, that C deal is, is actually like, I suppose in some sense it is five times better. And it may even be six times better. That, that the prices are reflecting kind of the available information. What I think is interesting about that and, you know, are the prices rational? Early stage uh, venture is a really like seed deal investing is really interesting because from a, from a market efficiency point of view, because if you think about it, you know, nobody, like, I mean, you know, zero investments like this. You make, you make a seed deal investment and then five years later, you look back on that seed deal investment and you're like, yeah, you know, I made 15% a year IRR on that seed deal investment. Like, I'm pretty happy with that. Like that, you know, that was like a pretty good investment. Like that never happens, right? Uh, five years down the line, you, you're, you know, that, that company is either worth, you know, zero or close to zero or it's worth several times as much as you paid for it. Um, you, you, the, the outcome of like, oh yeah, like we got, you know, pretty good uh, market return plus some illiquidity premium, that never happens for real estate venture. And so, uh, but what is interesting, so like in some sense, the pricing is all, is, is super not efficient, but within a pricing band, I do think that, that um, you know, the, the, the information, information on a real estate company can be about like, you know, founder backgrounds, as well as, you know, the, the information that like, you know, the financials of the business, you know, their retention rates, whatever, all of anything you'd put in a deck, that information appears to be more or less priced in to any deal. I, I think when I started, there was a, uh, at AngelList, there was a sense of like, oh, like, you know, can we, can we track, you know, oh, do we like, do you, you know, is the secret to invest in people who like worked at McKinsey or like maybe we invest in people who work at Google or like, you know, or I only back repeat founders or something. And the answer is like, what I think our research has shown is that the answer to all that is like, yes, like do McKinsey founders do better than founders who didn't go to McKinsey? Yes. Do founders who work at Google do better than founders who didn't work at Google? Yes. Do founders who have like really, really strong metrics do better, you know, their companies do better than companies that don't? Yes. Do second time founders do better than first time founders? Yes. The challenge is every single one of those signals you're paying for. So, uh, and I, and I think the actual, you know, this is super hard to estimate, but my own guess is that probably about 75% of that boon of, a, of any positive signal that you can observe is actually captured in terms of valuation for that company. So yeah, you know, someone going to GSB, uh, you know, it's a very positive, it's still a positive signal. You still want to invest in that person, but you know, you, it's not like obvious, easy money. Right. Uh, there's, not, there's not deals lying around, right? That sort of McKinsey person who then went to Google who founded a company and they're founding their second company. Like, that's priced into the price. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a you know twenty five million uh, valuation seed round, and and it's going to look you know it's 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 not going to be cheap. And you know, is, is it a good idea to invest in? Like, yeah, it's probably a good idea to invest in, but 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 it's it is a sort of accurate reflection. It's not some amazing opportunity. And and honestly, if you see a deal like that 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 does look like the pricing is pretty bad, it's probably because there are some you know, the company is, is operating in a terrible space or like there are a bunch of reasons that someone who went to, who worked at McKinsey and Google and went to GSB or whatever, um, might start a company that has a low valuation. And those are probably, you know, I think it's, I think it's probably well balanced. Hey there, this is the VP of financial strategy at Cruise jumping in to thank our sponsor of this podcast, Arc. At Cruise, we have a number of clients who are successfully using Arc's fintech tools to store deposits manage payments, get financing, earn yield, all in one place. But another thing that's important about ARC is that they have a heightened security and safety feature. Because they partner with globally recognized banks, they're able to offer an FDIC coverage over $250,000. In fact, 
they offer up to $5,250,000 in FDIC coverage. And if you have more cash than that, they have treasury solutions that can provide yield and safety for even more money. So if you're looking for a comprehensive financial solution that can help you scale, check out ARC. Go to ARC.tech. Thanks again to our sponsor, ARC. So here, here, here's where I would, um, I don't know if I can challenge you because I, yeah. I have data, but it's, it's, it's too anecdotal. But, you know, we have over 800 clients um, and we are seeing a slew, like an unusually large number of companies that are have either just exited or who are about to exit for what the venture community would consider pretty modest amounts, like 20 million bucks, 50 million bucks, right? These are not, they don't make the Wall Street Journal or, you know, they don't get on CNN when this happens, but... But these companies are able to do this because they raised a modest amount of money at a modest valuation. So they can exit. Their investors can get a little bit of a markup. And perhaps they sold more of their company than they would have if they had raised at a higher million dollar, a higher valuation. But because they did a round at $20 million, they can exit at 40 or $50 million and have their VCs say, okay, and you know, they're, they're walking away with tens of millions of dollars, right? But if they had raised at the sort of top quintile of valuations, you know, they may not be able to go and, and, and figure out how to do a $30 million exit that, that puts a ton of money in, in their pocket. Is that, sure. is that, how, yeah, how does that inter, intersect or is that too anecdotal? Or, or No, no, I think there's actually a couple of factors at play. So, so there are examples of where like a, a, the, the, the VC versus founder pension can sort of be there. But I also think there, there may be something, you know, specifically kind of maybe with, with some folks you work with where, where it's like, wh- what is a venture-backed company? Like, wh- what is, so one of the pieces of research that I've done that was, I think, the most kind of inflammatory and hopefully has resulted in the biggest changes in the kind of overall venture universe was a, a publication from a couple of years ago called Startup Growth and Venture Returns, where I feel like we assembled enough data to argue that early investments, you know, done the first year and a half of a company's investable life. So pre-seed, maybe seed rounds, draw their return multiples from an alpha less than due power law, which is a very special kind of probability distribution that has an undefined expectation. Um, and it, it sort of suggests, like it provides a mathematical case for why you'd want to broadly index very early stage investing. Um, and sort of, but what does broadly index mean? Does that mean, oh, I'm going to invest in everything. I'm going to invest in some restaurant. Like, no. Uh, the caveat that we had there was that you should broadly index in every credible deal. And then the pushback that we got, which was very fair, was that like, well, that seems like you're sort of begging the question around like, what, what, what is a credible deal? And, you know, we provided some text about what that could look like, but that from a quantitative basis really did not feel particularly solid. So what is a credible deal um, for, for, for early investing? And here's kind of where our thinking has gone on this based on the research, which is that there is some you know, rank order list or fuzzy rank order list of startup quality. And as you kind of uh, at, at the very top are mostly the most expensive deals that have the absolute best signals. So the single, like the, the deal I would attribute that I would say is the absolute best deal that sort of like for early stage investing would be, would be a company like Samsara, which is like a Meraki founders, second go at things, you know, in, in the same space, but better with all of the, the enterprise connections, like, you know, Meraki, which was like a billion plus dollar exit, but like r- run the same playbook, but better by someone who's now a second time founder. Like that's, that's the single. And I, I believe they did, they, you know, their seed round was like, like 
30, 35 million pre-money. Like that's the best deal. Like I, I, you know, in my opinion, that's like, that's like a very top of the rank order list where you just look at all the features and you're like, uh-huh. yeah, that's, that's, that's better than every other company you've seen. <laughs> it has everything. Uh, it's at the very top. And then okay. as, as you go down the list, the deals get cheaper. But what happens is the sort of distribution of exits falls faster than deal price. So the return multiples that you're kind of drawing from kind of get uh, less and less wild. And then at a certain point, they get the, the exits fall so much that you're no longer drawing from this alpha less than two power law. And so what, what I like about this is that sort of, and, and you know, th- th- this is not just, oh, you know, the Samsara guy went to MIT or whatever. It's like everything about the company. So it's, it's, it's you know, sort of everything that would be presented in a slide deck about, about their OCH investment opportunity. As that gets worse and worse, the price does fall, but it doesn't fall enough to compensate for the decrease in the return distribution these companies are drawing from. And so at some point you actually start, you stop drawing from this explosive, wild, uh, undefined expectation, alpha less than two power law, and you start drawing from like a something that looks like a much more sort of conventional return distribution. And so, in in that sense, there is this like that's that is the quantitative justification for what this credible deal threshold is. Is like, is is the deal sort of good enough to draw from that alpha less than two power law? Now, now where that is in terms of pricing is a question. You know, I, I would put I guess that that's probably something around you know. Uh, five or six million pre-money right now is probably where that threshold is, but I, I you know, I'm not sure. That's certainly not, not none of nothing here is investment advice. I don't know if that's how strong that is, but I do, <laughs> you do you do see this is like, and the, the interesting thing about this mental model is that you can actually put every business on this is every, every new company that gets started is somewhere on this rank order list, and it, but it's only a slice of them that's drawing from this alpha less than two power law that is a sort of a credible seed deal and kind of the, the implication the, uh, of the math and, and data we've done is that uh, LPs would benefit from uh, having some financial exposure to every single one of those credible deals because sort of any of them could become the next Uber, even if, um, you know, the, the one at the very top of that list, like Sensara, like, you know, de- definitely will, <laughs> but uh, any one of them could, you know. Um, and so that's the, that's kind of the, the implication. And I do wonder, you know, not to, yeah, I mean, you impugn your, your client base or whatever, but it may be that for a number of those firms, those kind of modest exits are like, there's nothing wrong with investing in companies that are not looking to, you know, to be a, oh, this is going to be a hundred X return off this investment. There's nothing wrong with investing in those businesses, but it is in some sense, a, a different asset class than, right. uh, I mean, I, 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 you know, at, at the early stage, you have to invest hoping and seeing some sort of signal that there's a chance to go really big. I think I think Correct. my key point was that if you go overboard with your valuation and how much you raise, you as a founder, like not thinking about the VC, but you as a founder may actually limit your potential outcomes in a way that makes it super binary. Whereas you might have, if, if you'd been more modest in how much you raised and at what valuations, you, you might have been able to have a great outcome for yourself and, and, you know, probably decent for your employees uh, and, and okay for your, um, for, for your, uh, investors. This is true. So I, I tend, I tend to wear the hat much more of the, like the, 
the LP or GP side as opposed to the startup founder side when thinking about the ecosystem. So, you know, from, from, from that perspective, like, uh, yeah, I mean, for, for virtually everybody, a few million dollars is just a, is like a wonderful life-changing outcome. Uh, I think a lot of founders would love to have that as the, as the outcome of their business, but their venture investors do not want that outcome. And in some sense, their LPs, the, the LPs of those funds also don't want that outcome. Right. Um, right. And, and I, you know, it is, it is worth uh, sort of considering. Now that said, you know, it's something we've looked at as well in terms of, of the research we've done. You know, AngelList operates this access fund, which uh, invests in funds and syndicates on the platform and looking at kind of the syndicate, uh, syndicated deals that the access fund has chosen to invest in. Um, what's interesting and unique is that the access fund is actually sort of uh, outperformed, um, at least in terms of investment selection, this sort of broad indexing idea. So if you put, you know, a, a dollar into every syndicated, you know, early stage syndicate on AngelList versus the access fund portfolio, the access fund portfolio has done better, um, which suggests that there, you know, there, there is some selection, you know, maybe the access fund is pulling from the, the, the better reaches of that rank order list. Um, but what is interesting when you look at the when you look at that portfolio is that the the, the action is not done better because it has fewer losers. Uh, it has the same number of 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 uh, oh, outcomes as as the Mars hole. It just has it has a higher concentration of bigger winners, and that's what that's that's what determines success of the venture portfolio is really like. And and this is this has come up because I think a lot of the time when people think about sort of. I mean, this is interesting for startup founders as well. When people think about uh, venture returns, so we had we had a GP on the platform who had a, an investment of theirs. You know, oh, uh, has gone through a couple rounds, it's sitting, I think a three X multiple, and they were like, well, I want to know, like, you know, I made that investment like three and a half years ago. Like, how how does that you know compare to like how long does it take for the typical syndicate investment to double or triple? Um, you know, does it take like three years? Does it take like five years? And the answer is like, no, <laughs> like that's completely, <laughs> that model, the question is, is actually wrong. Um, the typical syndicated deal on AngelList is pretty much flat. And Until it goes know, out of business, right? <laughs> uh, even, even the set, well, you know, I think it's, it's, I don't think it will go out of business. I think it would probably exit for close to flat, but it would not be impressive okay. performance and it's not going to double. It's not going to triple. You, okay. you need to get to doubling. You need like a 75th percentile deal. And then really, you know, with all those deals that do kind of go to zero or go very close to zero, you really need to get to like the 85th or 90th percentile before. Uh, so when you think about the success of a venture portfolio, it's really like what fraction of the deals that invest in are, are ended up in the top decile of, of seed deals. And that's like, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a power law business, right? That's, that's it exactly what you just, yeah, hundred percent. But, it, but, it's, but, but, but how does, how does that, how does, how does that contrast with another piece of research you put out that was basically saying larger VC portfolios did better? That's right. So, so you, it is all tied to this power law concept. So it's not just like to first order. It's like, well, okay, how many, what, what fraction of deals did that you had uh, were in the top decile? And then the next cut is like, well, what fraction of deals that you did were in the top 1%. And then it's like, what fraction of deals you had were like the 0.1%, which on like on AngelList would be like, you know, Uber, Notion, like, you know, mega, mega, mega hits. So the the goal of assembling a large portfolio or, or even just broadly indexing is that the answer to those questions is not zero. Um, because if you have a venture portfolio that that where the answer is like, well, you know, um, 
we didn't have any deals that were in the top 1% of deals. Your venture portfolio is not like, it's not going to be a great, it, it will be underperform, like that will underperform a broad indexer who, um, that, that has, oh, well, because we invested in everything, 1% of our deals was in the top 1%. Um, Got it. Okay. And, and, and so if you are, you know, is broad indexing possible? You know, there's a lot of questions about that, but like, you know, and then access fund obviously does a curated set, but the, the whole point is that, you know, access fund invested in notion, like you have to, you have to, um, you have to like, you know, if you invest in only half the deals, but you keep all the top 1% deals and that half that you invest in, Hey, yeah, you can absolutely outperform indexing, but like, don't miss any of them. Um, right. So that's, <laughs> that's the reasoning, you know, we, we would estimate that something like a broad index would, would outperform maybe three quarters of venture funds just because, uh, you, you know, if, if you if you only pick 10 or 15 companies or something, you kind of have to get lucky to get one in the top, uh, the top percent. And, right. and that's, uh, you know, the, the broad indexing will underperform all the, all, uh, all the lucky investors and dramatically outperform all of the unlucky investors. Amazing. That's really interesting. So I, I know we're running out of time here. Uh, I found this incredibly fascinating. I mean, you, you know, I love data. That's, <laughs> this, this is my jam. This is amazing. Um, you know, but before we wrap up any, any parting thoughts, like any, any kernels of wisdom that, um, you know, you think is particularly pertinent to VCs and founders who might be listening? Sure. Yeah. I think a couple things, like, I think we know how bad it is out there just from our, from our own data. Um, it's, it is, it is in fact, very, very bad. Uh, so the founders out there are like, just try to stay alive. I think that what I would expect to happen is a, a, a turnaround to happen um, next year as kind of what happened in the public markets at, at the start of last year begin to, begins to wash out um, finally. And what happened in kind of this year begins to start to affect early investing. I think there's something very interesting as well around the phenomenon, like for, for pretty much a huge chunk of the last decade, um, allocators have been overexposed to venture capital and private equity and, and sort of they've taken from public markets to put into private investments. Um, I think what's going to happen starting the next year for like the first time in the past decade is that investments are going to like those allocators are going to find themselves underexposed to their targets on, on venture because venture is, is continuing to get written down, whereas the public markets have come back. So that will be okay. intriguing. Um, the other thing I, I just want to say, like, I think, you know, our, our estimate about where pricing is going to end up for seed deals is that probably the, the typical seed deal pre-money will go down to something like maybe 12 and a half or 13 million pre-money. So if we are, you know, right now it's 16 and peaked to 20. Um, so, you know, we're maybe halfway through that process um, for all the founders out there who are raising money, like, and all the VCs who are looking for it, like, the reason we did that study is not to like hurt founders or hurt investors, but really just say like, this is based on the data we have, like this is where we think the prices are going to end up. And if we get there faster, like the, the whole ecosystem recovers faster. So, um, you know, in as much as like, I think that like a 13 million pre-money could be like a, a point of agreement or, you know, something that's like, I would love to see uh, startups get there sooner rather than later. Cause I, I do think, I do think, think things will end up there and it's just going to be a, I think a grinding process to get there. So the reason we published that piece on, on where we think valuations will end up is to try to help the market get there faster. So yeah, we, for, want, we for, want the market to start functioning again. Like it's, it's, it's really hard right now. Right. So yes, I, I agree. The sooner just, we can get to the, the baseline, 
we can recover from there, right? So same thing. Same thing as housing, right? It's just it's yeah, this grind. Yeah. You know, I think the market dynamics are actually quite similar, and for a lot of the same reasons. Um, you know, you have this kind of grinding, slow downward process where there's not a lot of deals being done, and people are trying to figure out, well, where is the bottom going to be? But yeah, and you're emotionally, you're emotionally attached to your house. You're emotionally as a founder, you're probably even more emotionally attached to your startup's valuation. So uh, yeah. these things are sticky. They they take time to move. Well, this was a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much. Where can people find you, particularly if they want to follow your research? Is, is LinkedIn the best place or where should they go to find you? I would say the Angelus blog. Um, I am not on any of the social medias at all, including okay. LinkedIn or Twitter or any of that. Um, all right. I, don't know, well, I, might have, I might have to start sharing your stuff on LinkedIn then. I've got to get sure. a bunch of, uh, <laughs> bunch of likes. And, <laughs> Amazing. And, uh, I, I've always found VC Twitter to be just a complete cesspool so would try to stay off of that as much as possible okay well that's good you're, you're probably a healthier person than i am then amazing well uh, abe this is wonderful thank you so much and uh, why don't we have this conversation again in a couple quarters and, and, and see where things are yeah we'd, we'd love to hopefully with with i would with what i would expect to be uh, better news to share i hope so too thank you so when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting you go to cruise Friends with your host, Scotty Owens.